morning. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would please work through the preaching of your word this morning. Pray that you'd be with me as I speak, that I would be clear and coherent, and uh, that I would be able to connect with those who are listening. And we pray that you would grant to those who are gathered here ears to hear what you have to say. We pray that the Holy Spirit would work both in the hearts of the unregenerate, as he sovereignly grants to them to be born again, and in the hearts of your children, that we might, as a result of our time in your word this morning, become more aligned with your will, more conformed to the image of your Son. Father, we ask these things in faith, knowing that it is your will for your people to be sanctified in the truth. And we pray these things in the name of our mediator, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, last week we started our study of this wonderful gospel by looking at the first four verses, right? the, the introduction, the preface, and we saw how these verses, they're not just filler, uh, they're God-breathed, spirit-inspired scripture, uh, and they're very important for us to understand Dr. Luke's mission and how he set out to carefully research and investigate the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and then compile everything so that his readers would have certainty, a certainty about Jesus, a certainty about who he was and what he came to do. And the product of Luke's meticulous efforts is what we're holding in our hands this morning, an orderly account of eyewitness testimonies and written accounts, diligent investigation, the gospel of Luke. And so with thoroughness and detail as his emphases, Luke starts us off, starts off his gospel by taking us all the way back, not just to the birth of Jesus, and not even to the birth of John the Baptist, but all the way back to the announcement to Zechariah of the birth of John the Baptist. Now the other gospel writers had different emphases, and so Luke is the only one who even mentions this narrative. Matthew is trying to convince a a mainly Jewish readership that uh, Jesus is the promised Messiah King. And so he starts right off with the genealogy. He links Jesus to David and to Abraham. And then he jumps right into the virgin birth. Well, Mark, Mark just skips the birth narratives altogether. He gets right into the action because his is the fast-paced narrative. And John, John starts off theological. He first establishes Jesus as the living word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and that word became flesh and dwelt among us. But Luke, remember last week I mentioned how Luke is really big on this idea of fulfillment, of the fulfillment of God's promises and God's prophecies. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Well, then in that case, let's go all the way back. Let's go back to the very beginning of the fulfilling of God's promises for a Messiah, all the way back 
to an angel first appearing to Zechariah to tell him who his future son would be. That's going to be our text for this morning, Luke chapter 1. Luke 1, basically verses 5 through 25, that's basically the story unit. Uh, But as I prepared this week, I just realized there's absolutely no way, uh, there's just so much stuff in these verses, uh, absolutely no way that I was going to be able to squeeze into one sermon. So we're going to split it up into two. Uh, Today, we're mainly going to keep our focus on the parents, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And then next time, we're going to shift our focus to the son who would be born, John the Baptist. And so let's look at our verses through a four-point outline. Hopefully this will be helpful for you to keep track of what's going on in the story here. We've got point number one, the priest. Point number two is the promise. Point number three is the proof. And point number four is the pregnancy. Just call it what it is, right? This is the spiritual gift of alliteration. Point number one, the priest. Verse five. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. So right off the bat, the very first verse after the introduction, we already see evidence of Luke's careful and detailed research. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. This is not once upon a time. This is not long, long ago in a faraway land. This is not there once lived a man named Zechariah. No, we can read this gospel two millennia after Luke wrote it. We can read it and we can know with certainty that this isn't just some long ago legend or myth or fairy tale. This is something that happened in a specific time in history. Uh, Roman records tell us that Herod ruled from 37 BC to 4 BC, and these events would have happened at the end of that reign. And this is something that happened in a specific place of geography, Judea, referring to uh, the larger area in which the Jews lived. Remember, Dr. Luke is giving us this orderly account that we might have certainty. But verse 5, while it is a historical marker, it's not just a historical marker. It also beautifully sets the scene by giving us the historical backdrop to the rest of the story. Herod, also known as Herod the Great. He was a, a puppet king, uh, given authority by the Romans to rule over the Jews. And so he's referred to as the king of Judea or, or even the king of the Jews. Uh, and admittedly, it's, it's very confusing, right? You're, you're reading through the New Testament. It's like everybody's named Herod. Uh, there's this guy right here. He's Herod the Great. Uh, he rules when Jesus is born. Then there's his son, Herod, Herod Antipas, who uh, killed John the Baptist, uh, who questioned Jesus during his trial. Then there's two other Herods uh, in the book of Acts, one of them who kills James and then himself is struck dead by God, and then the other one who comes very at the end of the book uh, questioning and trying Paul. It's like, what are the odds that four different rulers in the region would all be named Herod? And obviously they're related. Uh, but going back to our Herod, right, king of the Jews, Herod, Uh, To the Jewish people, he is symbolic. He is representative, another example of the oppressive foreign rule that they'd been under in one shape or form since the days of the Babylonian captivity. 
Let's think back a few weeks to our study in 2 Samuel. Remember the line of kings that was supposed to come from David? Well, that comes to an abrupt end in 586 BC when the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, when they come in and they destroy the city of Jerusalem and they take all the Israelites captive. And even after they come back from their captivity, the glory of the previous kingdom was never reinstated, was never recaptured. Uh, They never get their kingship back. Uh, They're always under one foreign power or another for hundreds and hundreds of years. And in this day, the foreign power was Rome. And the ruler that the Romans placed over them was Herod. But it'd be one thing for the Jews if uh, the foreign power that ruled over them was this, you know, just and righteous and kind king. I think that would make their situation a little more tolerable. But Herod is like the exact opposite. He's a vicious and cruel king. He's the same guy who, Matthew chapter 2, he felt so threatened in hearing that Jesus was born as king of the Jews. What does he do? He has all the male children in the region around Bethlehem, ages 2 and under, killed. I mean, just think about how ruthless and evil you would have to be to order something like that. But even if they were under the rule of a foreign power, and even if that king was really wicked and ruthless, well, at least the Jews had God speaking to them, right? Think about how God would comfort his people with promises, with his, with his wonderful word, even during the Babylonian captivity, and after the return by speaking through the prophets. But now... Nothing. God seems silent. The last book in the Old Testament canon, Malachi, written in the 400s BC, which means that for 400 plus years, God had been silent to Israel. No revelatory word. No prophets. This is a famine of God's word. Will God ever speak again? What about all those promises that he made? Is God done dealing with mankind graciously? To put that all together, foreign occupation, a wicked and especially cruel king, and worst of all, God's seeming silence. And you've just got this really dark period in Israel's history in the days of Herod king of Judea. But as we continue in verse 5, we begin to see just this little glimmer of hope. Because even in that darkness, God still has his people. It's kind of like what Paul's talking about in Romans 11. In the days of Elijah, the whole nation seems to be falling into apostasy, drowning in idolatry. It seems like God is nowhere to be found. But God has kept his remnant. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And Luke's like, yeah, even in the days of Herod, king of Judea, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, priests didn't have to marry the daughters of priests. 
But in this case, Zechariah does. He marries a daughter of Aaron named Elizabeth. He said, well, who is this Zechariah guy? Well, he's just a random priest from the countryside of Judea. Like, apart from what we have here in Luke chapter 1, we literally know nothing about this guy. Uh, He is the kind of guy who is supposed to get lost to history uh, within two or three generations. And so that sense, if you think about it, he's very much like me and you. And that's the guy who God decides to start the fulfillment of his promises for a Messiah with. I mean, maybe you would think, like, God's going to do something uh, a little more spectacular, a little more splashy if he's going to bring about the Savior of the world. Start with someone a little more famous or influential or powerful, not some random country priest that no one's ever heard of. But friends, I think we've been studying the Bible for long enough to know better by now. I mean, we just finished our series in the books of Samuel. You remember how the book of 1 Samuel starts, right? This is the book with all the stories of the great prophet of the Lord, Samuel, and the great king of Israel, David. And how does the book begin? There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. Uh, The beginning of Luke is almost as obscure. And isn't that the same God who continues even today to use the foolish in the world to shame the wise and the weak in the world to shame the strong? But look at how they're described in verse 6. They're both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Righteous before God? And that could refer to their right living before God, in which case, walking blamelessly, that part is just kind of like a parallel statement. And obviously, walking blamelessly doesn't mean walking sinlessly, uh, because even before we're done with the story today, we're going to see some of Zechariah's unbelief. But it refers to a life in which they're genuinely pursuing after God and his law. Another possible meaning is righteous before God is referring to their right standing before God, their their justification, the fact that God has forgiven them of their sins and given them a perfect record, in which case the walking blamelessly part explains the fruit of that right standing. They say, wait a minute, hold on. These folks are living before Jesus was even born, How could they have their sins forgiven? How could they be made righteous before God? Well, what does Genesis say about Abraham? Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. So Abraham was made righteous by faith in God's promises. And what about David? Well, David is the guy who wrote in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. David's sin was forgiven by faith in God's promises. Now, was the object of their faith, and for that matter, the faith of Zechariah and Elizabeth, was it as clearly known to them as it is to us now? As in, like, did they know that Jesus would die on a cross to take away their sins and in exchange give them his perfect righteous record? No. 
but they believed God's promises to send a savior, a redeemer, a messiah. And so they were made righteous in the same way that we're made righteous through faith alone, by grace alone, in the gospel alone. I know that in a crowd this size, there are several, maybe many of you who are not born again. You're not Christians. And so you're not like Zechariah and Elizabeth. You have not been made righteous before God. You're still in your sin. And if nothing changes, you're headed to an eternity in hell after you die. Well, friend, let me exhort you to look to the gospel. The gospel that uh, the faithful Old Testament saints like Abraham and David, they looked forward to. The gospel that Zechariah and Elizabeth, they saw shadows of. But the gospel that we now understand in its historical completion. The gospel that says that Jesus, uh, the one whom John the Baptist would go before to set the stage for him, that this Jesus would die for the sins of his people and give them his perfect righteousness so that they might be, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, righteous before God. And that righteousness, that forgiveness of sins, that can be yours even today if you would repent and believe. The gospel is of first importance, and today is the day of salvation. So our story begins with this wonderful couple. Uh, They're both of a a priestly lineage. Uh, They're both given the highest possible commendation, right? Righteous before God. And yet, look at verse 7. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, as the reader, we're supposed to notice this seeming contradiction between verses 5, I'm sorry, verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, they were righteous before God. Verse 7, they had no child. We've talked about this before in our study in the books of Samuel. We talked about Hannah. We talked about Michael. Back then, in Jewish culture, childlessness was viewed as a curse from God. And if you read the Old Testament, you you can kind of see where they're getting that from because several times in the Old Testament, childlessness is listed as a punishment for disobedience, as a curse for disobedience. For example, look at Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And time out, pop quiz here. Let's see if you've been paying attention. What are Zechariah and Elizabeth specifically commended for in verse 6? Walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of God. Well, continuing Deuteronomy, look at verse 18. One of the punishments for not being careful to do all the commandments and statutes of God, cursed shall be the fruit of your womb. And so it was a great source of social shame, a stigma, a reproach for a woman to be barren. And you get a sense of that in verse 25. Look ahead there. Look at how Elizabeth refers to my reproach among people because of her childlessness. 
And maybe the, the feeling of shame is best kind of captured by what Rachel says to Jacob. Rachel was Jacob's wife. At one point in her life, she was barren. And she screams to her husband, give me children or I shall die. So going back to Luke 1, right? in the eyes of Jewish culture, it just would not follow from verse 6 that they were righteous before God, that then, verse 7, they had no child. Everybody around them would have wondered, like, what did they do wrong? How did they sin? Kind of like Job's friends. Like, Job, we know you did something wrong to bring about all this calamity. What'd you do? Just, just tell us what you did. God must be displeased with you in some way, Zechariah. You must have done something to bring this upon yourself, Elizabeth. But it would be faulty logic to say that because childlessness is listed as one of the punishments for sin, that therefore every instance of childlessness is because of sin. It's the exact same thing with the man born blind, John chapter 9. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Answer, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Well, Luke chapter 1, who sinned, this man, Zechariah, or his wife, Elizabeth, that she's barren? Answer, it was not that this man sinned or his wife, but that the works of God might be displayed in them, as we're going to see in the rest of the chapter. Which is another thing to think about with regards to this juxtaposition between verses 6 and 7. Given verse 7, that they were without a child... Uh, in that cultural setting, with all the, the shame and the reproach that came with that, uh, that God was seemingly withholding from them the one earthly blessing that they wanted the most, that their hearts desired the most. Well, doesn't that make the description of them in verse 6 all the more impressive? Verse 6 speaks all the more powerfully to their godliness, does it not? They were marked and characterized by their righteousness before God. I mean, think about how easy, or we might even say excusable, it would have been for them to have been characterized by discontentment or jealousy or anger or complaining or grumbling. For them to be known first and foremost for those things, but no, they are characterized as righteous before God. Brothers and sisters, that is grace at work. To be able to say, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. But friends, let's also understand this. Even with God's grace at work within them, even as they lived faithfully in spite of their trials, we cannot deny or diminish that this would have been a very painful experience for Zechariah and Elizabeth. You can just imagine the, the heartbreak every month as Elizabeth finds out yet again that another month had passed and she still was not pregnant. This cycle of the slim hope and then bitter, crushing disappointment. And months would become seasons and seasons would become years and Years became, well, they're now advanced in years. 
And perhaps the hope that they might have held on to when they were still young is by this point completely gone. Why, Lord, are you withholding this from us? Why, when everybody else seems to have a child, do we not? Let me say one thing really quickly to those of you who, even as you read Luke's description here of Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, this just especially resonates with you. Like you yourself have have experienced firsthand this same pain and and disappointment for months or perhaps years. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I entreat you, I exhort you, I urge you to continue to trust in an all-wise, always good God who remains sovereign over all things, including this trial. Uh, To continue to believe that God's plan for your life is truly what's best. And that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That you might even see the example of Zechariah and Elizabeth as those who continue to trust God even though he did not grant to them that which they so badly wanted. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. We're still under point number one here, the priest. See why I split the sermon up. What else does Luke tell us about the priest? Look at verses 8 and 9. While he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So you think back to the book of Exodus. The priesthood is first established, right? It's Aaron and his sons. He's he's got two that are alive, Eleazar and Ithamar. And so they're in charge of all the things that the priests had to do, whether that's making the sacrifices or offering the incense or various other things going on in the tabernacle. And that's all well and good. But you just got to think about it a little bit. There's an inevitable issue that's going to arise after a few generations because Eleazar and Ithamar, they get a lot of sons, And they, in turn, have sons, who, in turn, have sons. And so you go down enough generations, and you're going to have way more priests than you have space at the tabernacle. Way more priests than you have duties to perform. By the time Zechariah's day, about 1,500 years after Aaron, you've got close to 20,000 priests. Like, how in the world are you going to have 20,000 people working at the temple? Well, back in David's day, King David came up with this nice solution. He divided the priests into 24, like, family units. And you can, if you're really interested in this, you can read about it in First Chronicles 24. You've got these 24 divisions that would basically take turns doing the work at the temple, performing the priestly duties in Jerusalem for a week at a time. And there's a couple of major feasts and observances, uh, like the Passover or, like, the Feast of Booths, where, like, it was all hands on deck, everybody serving. But other than those special occasions... Basically, each division is only on duty for two separate weeks during the year. In Zechariah, at verse 5, he's of the division of Abijah. Well, thanks for that detail, Dr. Luke. But even in that single division, the division of Abijah, it's still too big. You still have too many folks to do all of this stuff. And so you really only need, let's say, like one guy to light the incense. And so those duties within your division were assigned by lot. 
Once you know it, on this particular day, Zechariah is chosen by Lot to burn the incense. So Zechariah's job was to go into the holy place of the tabernacle, to go to the altar of incense. Remember, the altar of incense is right before the very thick curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is held. And remember that in that room, right, only one person, the high priest, was allowed to go once a year on the Day of Atonement and only with the blood of the sacrifice. And so for your typical priest... Basically, everybody that's not a high priest, right? For your typical, typical priest, like Zechariah, to be selected to burn the incense, that's as close as you're ever going to get to the Holy of Holies. And so this was the highest honor for a priest. So much so that there was a rule that if you got selected once, you couldn't ever do it again. And so quite literally, right, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for him. It's a once-in-a-lifetime experience for Zechariah. This would have been the peak, the, the, the highlight, the apex of his priestly career. And so Zechariah would have gotten coals from the altar of burnt uh, offering, and he would have brought them inside to the holy place, to the altar of incense. And he would spread the incense over the coals, and that would produce a fragrance that would be uh, spreading throughout the whole temple. And then as that fragrance spread, he was to pray on behalf of the nation. Look at verse 10. Uh, The people who are outside in the courtyard, they're also joining in in praying. So, through the first 10 verses of Luke chapter 1, we have to admit, this is a remarkably unremarkable account. Just a random country priest doing his job. It was a special day for him personally, but in the big picture, I mean, like some priest from some division have been selected by Lot to do exactly what he's doing every single day. And so there is absolutely nothing remarkable or noteworthy or amazing at all, at least not yet. But that brings us to point number two, which is the promise. Now we get to the remarkable and noteworthy and amazing. Look at verse 11. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. you got to love how it's kind of of matter-of-fact Luke is here. Just like that, 400-plus years of God's silence has been broken. Now notice Zechariah's reaction. Look at verse 12. He was troubled, and fear fell upon him. I think it's safe to put all the blame on Hallmark and uh, Precious Moments for this. Uh, When most people think of angels, what do you think of? Well, you think of the the, the cute little chubby babies, always wearing like cloth diapers, and you got the little halo and and the wings, uh, but cute enough that you would put them on your windowsill for decoration. That's not how the Bible presents angels. No, the Bible presents angels as awe-inspiring and and just terrifying, powerful beings. Anybody remember the story when the angel of the Lord struck down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers just like that? You never see that depicted on a Hallmark card. Like, there's not a single instance, I challenge you to find a single instance in the Bible where someone sees an angel and like, oh, that is so cute. Look at that baby. Now, every single human-angel interaction in the Bible 
leads to the man or the woman being utterly terrified, thinking that they're going to die. And that's why the most common words out of angels' mouths in the Bible is do not fear. We don't even have to like, flip around in the Bible to see this. I'll just show you three from the first two chapters of Luke. Angel appears to Zechariah, chapter 1, verse 13. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Angel appears to Mary, chapter 1, verse 30. Do not be afraid, Mary. Angel appears to shepherds, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Chapter 2, verse 10, the angel says, fear not. Fear not, do not be afraid. I could destroy you if I was coming in judgment, but that's not why I'm here. I'm here with good news. Verse 13, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now that naturally raises the question, what prayer is he talking about? Like, are we supposed to think that Zechariah was praying for a child when he was burning incense in the holy place? I don't think so. This is not like your private prayer time. He's on duty. He's a, he's a priest of Israel. This is his once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to fulfill the role of lighting the incense and then praying on behalf of the nation. It's like if, if Christian were to use the congregational prayer time and he just prayed for himself in his own personal request. That would be strange. How much more strange if Zechariah was using this time, he's lighting the incense in the holy place to just pray for his own personal requests. Now, Zechariah inside the holy place is probably praying the exact same thing that the people outside in the, in the tabernacle, sorry, in the courtyard are praying. They're all praying that God would send the Messiah, the consolation of Israel, that Emmanuel would come, that God would fulfill his promises and save his people. But look at what the angel says. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Well, that sure makes it sound like it's a request for a son that's being answered. And surely that was a request that Zechariah and Elizabeth had been praying for for a very long time, at least at some point in their lives. So what's going on here? Which prayer is God answering? I think this is where we need to recognize the awesome power and omnipotence of our God. Like he's just altogether unlike us. Me and you, like we can only really think about one thing at a time. The the whole idea of multitasking, right? Very overrated. But God, even in how he answers prayers, he is able to answer multiple levels of prayers at once. On one level, he's answering the long-term, many decades request of a barren couple. Maybe even a request that they had stopped praying now that they're advanced in years. Look ahead to what Elizabeth says in verse 25. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me. And so in one sense, this is God answering the very specific request from a very specific couple by looking upon Elizabeth with favor, by removing her shame and bringing her this great and wonderful joy of finally having a child. But on another level, simultaneously, God is answering the prayers of Zechariah in the holy place and the people outside the temple that he would show favor to Israel. And on an even grander level, 
also simultaneously, he's answering the prayers of all of his people who have longed for Messiah to come. For Messiah to come to save his people by setting salvation into motion through the birth of John the Baptist to this barren couple. In that sense, it's just like the story of Abraham and Sarah. When God gives them Isaac, yes, he is answering Sarah's prayer that her barrenness will be removed and he's taken away her personal reproach. But at the same time, God is doing something much grander and much greater. He's setting into motion the covenant promise to bless all the families of the earth through the offspring of Abraham because ultimately Isaac's line will lead to Jesus. That's God's perfect omnipotence in sovereignly answering prayers. But I also want you to notice another thing from this episode, which is God's perfect timing in sovereignly answering prayers. Just think about this from Zechariah and Elizabeth's perspectives. We talked a little bit about the the pain that they went through. Uh, If they could have drawn this up themselves... Like if they were in charge of answering prayers, surely they would have had a baby a long time ago. They never would have chosen for themselves decades of barrenness and the cultural shame that came along with that. Up to them, God would have answered their request a long time ago. But God answered their prayer in his perfect timing. I'm reminded of my dear friends at North Shore Baptist, uh, Vinny and Josie Nizzo. I'll tell you a little bit about them. Uh, Vinny and Josie were married at a young age. Uh, they were both unbelievers. And then Josie got saved. And God saved Josie's soul. And so like any faithful Christian married to an unbeliever, she prayed for her husband's salvation. She prayed. And she prayed. And she prayed. For 27 years, she prayed. And sure, there were days in year 20 and year 26 and even year 27 when it must have been a lot harder for her to keep praying because God in those 27 years never answered the prayer. Vinny's heart remained dead in sin. And 27 years after she started praying for him every day, Easter Sunday, 2008, God regenerated Vinny. Vinny was born again. And in the 13 and a half years since then, he's been walking faithfully with the Lord. Every weekday morning, I get a a text message. I get a poem from uh, Vinny about Jesus, about the gospel in my text messages. Why? Because God was pleased to answer Josie's prayers in his perfect timing. And so, brothers and sisters, those of you who've been praying for loved ones, unsaved loved ones, maybe for years and years, maybe for decades, maybe for 27 years, your unsaved parents, your unsaved spouse, your unsaved children, your unsaved best friend. Friend, don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Their heart just seems further and further from the Lord. Great, that's all the more reason for you to continue to pray. And remember that if God does answer that prayer, if it is his will for that person to be saved, know that he will answer it in his 
perfect timing, not yours. J.C. Ryle once put it this way. I like this. It is not for us to prescribe either the time or the manner in which our requests are to be answered. Amen. So Zechariah, God is going to answer your prayer. In his perfect timing, he is going to answer the prayer and your wife, Elizabeth, is about to become pregnant. You're going to give him the name John. Look at verses 14 through 17. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For you will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. We're going to talk about those verses, right? the ministry of John the Baptist next time. For this week, right, we've seen the prophet, we've seen the promise. Look at point number three, which is the proof. Zechariah asks the angel for proof. He says to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring to you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. You remember how Zechariah is described in verse 7 as uh, walking blamelessly before the Lord? Well, he's still a sinner. And here his unbelief comes out pretty clearly. Just think about it, right? Like, he was just on temple duty. He was praying that God would send the Messiah. And then God sends him an angel to tell him that indeed he is going to send the Messiah. And that Zechariah's own son would go before him to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah's reaction, it's not, wow, praise God, he really hears prayer. He really answers prayer. He just answered all my prayers just like that at once. No, it's, I'm an old man. My wife's an old lady. What are you talking about? He's too busy thinking about his own circumstances and his wife's circumstances that he forgets that an angel is saying these things to him. So the angel's like, I'm Gabriel. And immediately Zechariah's mind would have gone to the book of Daniel and how Gabriel delivers all of these prophecies from the mouth of God in that book. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. It's like the angel saying, what do you think matters more? The fact that you're old and that your wife is old or the fact that I am a messenger of God and I have words from God himself? Like, which do you think is more important? You really think that your age, your wife's age, is going to stop God from doing what he says he's going to do? And I mean, Zechariah, I don't don't want to give him too hard of a time here, but Zechariah, you know your Bible. Like, you know God can do this. Zechariah, you know about Abraham and Sarah, how God promised them in their old age a child. Abraham was 100. Sarah was 90. And she gets pregnant, and she gives birth to the patriarch Isaac. Zechariah, you know about Hannah. She was childless, and God heard her prayer and gave her a son set apart for the Lord, the great prophet Samuel. 
Zechariah, you know about Manoah and his wife. They were barren. They were without child, and yet God grants to them a son, the great judge, Samson. Like Zechariah, you don't need blind faith. You just need to look back at how God has worked through history, how he has repeatedly raised up great men from the wombs of barren women. But Zechariah disbelieves. He asks for a sign. And Gabriel's like, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. And he makes him mute. Now, the muteness, the silence, uh, I think it serves two functions. One, most obviously, it's punishment for Zechariah's uh, unbelief. Uh, Gabriel's pretty straight up about it. You will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not obey my words, because you did not believe my words. His muteness is because of his unbelief. It's discipline because of his unbelief. And so for nine months, every single day, when he tries to say something, he would be reminded of his unbelief when God spoke to him. But we're reminded of Proverbs 3. We're reminded of Hebrews 12. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God's loving discipline is for the good of his children. And so the second function of his muteness is gracious proof. Gracious proof that God is really going to bring about everything that he just promised to Zechariah. You will be silent, unable to speak, until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. You see that? By you not being able to speak for nine months, you're going to know for sure Point number three, the proof. You're going to know for sure that this is really happening. Like, I doubt that anybody in human history has ever been more sure of something happening than Zechariah was sure of his wife giving birth. And what does God's discipline produce in his children? Hebrews 12, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And wouldn't you agree that the Benedictus at the end of this chapter, uh, the first words that come out of his mouth are just praise to God? Don't you think that qualifies? Well, remember, even that as all this stuff is going on here, seeing an angel, becoming mute, he's still on duty, right? He's still on the clock. And so you can imagine the people outside, they're expecting Zechariah to be out by now. Well, it's taking him so long. And maybe they start thinking, their, their imaginations start running wild, and they think something really bad happened. And Zechariah did something irreverent, and maybe God struck him dead. The the holy place isn't like a place where you can hang around afterwards and take pictures and things like that. It's a place where you do what you need to do and you get out as quickly as you can. Maybe he did some kind of like Nadab and Abihu thing with that incense and and, and God struck him dead. People start whispering. People start wondering. Verse 22, he finally comes out and the people are expecting him to pronounce the blessing upon them from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. But he can't say anything. Remember, he's mute. And so he's, like, I don't know, signing to them, and looks like he's playing charades or something like that. But the people realize that something had happened, that he had seen a vision. Point number three, the proof. Well, that brings us now to the very end of the story. Point number four, the pregnancy. The priest, the promise, the proof, and now the pregnancy. 
Verses 24 and 25, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. That's just wonderful to think about. He looked on me. Here's Elizabeth, married to a person of no significance or influence, a random country priest. She herself is an old lady, reproached by society. She's lived a life wondering why God never answered her prayer. And now she comes to the realization that God has looked upon her. And it's not just that your reproach is going to be taken away because you're finally going to have a child of your own. It's that your reproach is going to be replaced with honor because this isn't just going to be any son. He's going to be a great man. He's going to turn people's hearts to God. He's going to be a forerunner for the Messiah. He's going to begin the process of God bringing about all the promises and all the prophecies of the kingdom. So next time we're in the text, we'll pick it up here. We'll focus specifically on the ministry of John the Baptist from verses 14 to 17. We're going to think about how he came to be that forerunner What has he come to do? Why is he such a unique person in redemptive history? Let me finish this morning with just one quick application for us. It's to know your Old Testament. We need to know our Old Testaments. I'm not sure if you noticed this, but I don't know. I probably spoke for like 50 minutes. I think 45 of those minutes, I was just talking about things from the Old Testament. Like we talked about the priesthood, talked about the incense, talked about divisions of priests, and we talked about Abraham and Sarah, and we talked about Manoah and his wife, and Hannah, and the angel Gabriel from Daniel, and uh, God counting righteousness to Abraham, and, and so on, and so on, and so on. You get the point. I've been talking a lot about the Old Testament. Now, this is a particularly Old Testament-heavy text, but it's not that unusual either. So friends, you cannot have any significant understanding of the New Testament. You cannot have any significant understanding of the Gospel of Luke unless you know your Old Testament. So we need to stop treating the New Testament as an entirely separate entity from the Old. We need to realize and recognize the interconnectedness of the two. I think we need to delight in reading the minor prophets. Uh, We need to know about the judges and the kings. We need to, to study the hard books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. First and foremost, because it's God's holy and inerrant word, but also because we really can't know much about our Lord Jesus unless we know our Old Testament. Can you read, can you study the Gospel of Luke without knowing the Old Testament? Absolutely, you can. But you would be missing a lot of the glory of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how you work through the prayers of your people and how you worked through the prayers of even Zechariah and Elizabeth and how you looked upon her and showed her favor that you might set into motion all that happened with John as the forerunner to our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Father, we pray that you would grant us each and every day a more glorious picture of Christ as we worship him in spirit and in truth. Father, we pray that you continue to use this book to reveal yourself to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.